The first six months, I'd say, were, were really tough because the kids were sick off and on. You know, kids are sick when they're young anyway, but they just had different kinds of things there. Kids here maybe wouldn't come in contact with Shigella or Giardia as much. And whenever anybody mentioned, oh, there's an embassy trip going to Zanzibar, to learn Swahili. I said, I'm in, you know, what's wrong with learning Swahili in Zanzibar, right? It was a very hard leave because it was the place I loved living the most, but we were out on the land as much as we could be. We took trips together as a family. We, we hiked Mount Meru, which is the second highest peak. Um, you know, we went to all the game parks and we trekked across the Ngorongoro Highlands. So all these wonderful trips that we could do over a period of three years rather than rush it all into a number of weeks. But we won't tell everything about that chapter because we want people to read the book too, right? <laughs> yeah, let's, let's have a cliffhanger thrown in there. Welcome to the Winging It Travel podcast with me, James Hammond. Every Monday, I'll be joined by guests to talk about their travel stories, travel tips, backpacking advice, and so much more. Right now, I'm taking the podcast on the road traveling with me. So tune in every week for short form episodes detailing all my travels alongside my Monday guest episode. Are you a backpacker, gap year student, or simply someone who loves to travel? Then this is the podcast for you, designed to inspire you to travel. There'll be stories to tell, tips to share, and experiences to inspire. Welcome to the show. Hello, everybody. Just thought I'd do a quick 30 second to a minute audio clip on the latest part of my travels. I realised I'd chuck these guest episodes out and I don't really give an update as to travels or the podcast before. So now this is going to change. Before we get stuck into today's episode with Terry, we've actually finished our road trip and we're in the rainy city of Vancouver. Some things never change. Great coffee, just grey rainy days instead. But we're here recalibrating and assessing what we've done this year and also the road trip as we drove 23,000 kilometers and thinking what our next steps are. We're thinking probably a bit of temp work. I'll get some more guests on the episode ready for the rest of the year, bit of stable time, sit still, and a bit of money before we set off again in December. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get stuck into Terry's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode where I'm joined by Terry Repack. I have read Terry's brand new book, Circling Home, What I Learned by Living Elsewhere. And I absolutely loved it. And I've got so many questions to ask about the book. So straight off the bat, you've got to read it. So it resonates very closely with me at the minute, traveling last 10 years, working in different countries. So we're going to talk about the book, Terry's previous travels. And Terry, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in Seattle uh, with my husband. And my one of my uh, grown children has ended up living in Seattle, which is a really nice coincidence. The other one is in London. So uh, yeah, we get to travel to London frequently. Yeah, best of both worlds, right? <laughs> best of both worlds. Yeah. We'll come to your children because they mention a uh, very lot in your book, like your Stefan and uh, Elena as well. So we're going to come to those in a bit. But before we come to the book, I just want to get an early idea of travels in your life. When you were growing up, I guess, in the United States, was there anything from your childhood that resembled travel or anything that maybe kicked off a bit of wanderlust early doors? So I'm one of seven children, and my parents were strapped for uh, 
resources to travel. So we didn't do much. All we did, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland. And the big uh, trip every year was to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. So that's only three hours away. Um, not much travel when I was young, but when I was college age, I went to American University first. That's in D.C. Um, and I grew up around a lot of diplomats in D.C. There were foreigners, you know, from uh, international people everywhere in my grade school, my high school, college, university. And it was really through them that I got the travel bug. Uh, my closest friends at American University were a, a Hungarian woman and an Ethiopian man, Syrian guy. We had a big group of um, foreign students. In fact, in order to feel sort of at home at the university, I joined the Foreign Student Association and, and they needed somebody to be the you know secretary, uh, admin person, so I volunteered and got to know a lot of people that way. And that kind of really fed my wanderlust. And was your wanderlust more for international travel or even to see in your own country? Really more for international at that point because I was meeting so many foreigners. And it happened that um, I started taking German in mm -hmm. college and my uh, university offered a semester abroad or summer study in Austria. So I went to Salzburg, Austria at age 20. And it was just, I mean, it's like, how do you land in heaven, you know, on your first trip overseas? <laughs> That's what I did. It's just a, a an idyllic little city in the heart of Europe. And so I bought a Uriel Pass and found a friend who also had a Uriel pass and we just went everywhere. We went, you know, on weekends, we would go to Switzerland or to Venice or to Hungary. We, we just went everywhere that summer. And that really kind of fanned the flames, I would say. <laughs> That's a great country to start Austria, I must admit. I mean, my dad, who, believe it or not, doesn't have a passport, so he's never traveled. But the only country he talks about going to, if he did go, somewhere abroad would be Austria just because he's sitting on like films I guess sound of music comes to comes to mind but stuff like that and I think just I think he's right he, he yeah. can't do better that's that's a great place to yeah aspire to see <laughs> and we did uh, go to Vienna this uh this year and it's a nice. wonderful city yeah. yeah that's a very nice city and we also appreciate like yourself you've got a euro rail pass we got the interrail pass which is the one for UK or for Europeans and I think for the first time, I appreciate how easy it is to travel by train across Europe. Despite being from there, I was like, oh, you can do this. I should have done it 10 years ago. I know. And back when I did it, we crossed borders and you had to show your passport and change money and all that stuff. Yeah, now yeah. it's like nothing. You, you just It's like crossing states in the US. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. It must be like going in the United States, but just different countries all the time instead of states. It must be That's just it. a... Obviously, the United States has a pretty poor train network, so it wouldn't work, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, the European trip kicked off the Wanderlust. And it did. Did you think, oh, okay, maybe I could, after the semester, after finishing college, did you think, oh, I might move somewhere for a year? Or was it just more travel, maybe going to do two or three months, different countries? What were you thinking? You know, I liked being a student. I was a good student. And um, I had, by that point, 
decided to major in journalism. So I liked writing mm-hmm. um, and I kept journals all through my uh, 20s and traveling and all sorts of, um, you know, various times in my life I would be writing a lot. So I decided after that, when it was time to go to graduate school, when I was in between jobs, that uh, I I met a friend who had just returned from London, from the LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science. And it sounded so intriguing. I was in my mid-20s. I said, wow, now's the time to do it. So I did. And at that time, it was so cheap for foreigners to go. It was cheaper to go overseas and to study in London than to do a master's degree in the U.S. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. <laughs> So uh, I I got a cut rate deal for a master's degree, and it wasn't that expensive living there because I lived with a bunch of people and uh, had a fabulous year. It was a great experience. Loved London. Decided I really want to live here. So mm-hmm. I th- I'd say over the next five years, I went back and forth half a dozen times trying to find a gig, some way to work and stay over there and the only way that really worked was to enroll in graduate school again so I enrolled at the University of London and and started a PhD there but uh, unfortunately my funds ran out and I couldn't work so I came home and and finished my PhD at home in the U.S. actually at Emory in uh, Atlanta and I just, I, you know, I knew I would get myself back overseas somehow, but it just wasn't the right time when I was doing it then. Yeah, good point about that, because people sometimes think it's easy to go to countries, but like US is a strange one. So UK, you can get, if you're at that age, you can get work permits for Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Back in the time, you could go to EU, but it's a bit different now. But US, you just can't do it, like unless you go on, a, I guess, a student visa or it's just really hard to go. I guess it works both ways to get into each other's like countries. It's a bit frustrating. Very tricky. Yeah. 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 And I was yeah. finished. I was finished trying to rig the system, or <laughs> yeah. to, you know, figure out a way. So I said, oh, I know I can get a job at home. I'll do that. Which is crazy when you think, you know, US is based on accepting people in, right? But it's actually quite hard to, to get in. Not so much anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. That's changed. Yeah, yeah I know. Yeah. Uh, I want to touch on quickly for your writing because one of my biggest regrets when I travelled early doors is not journaling anything. It's the reason I started the podcast. I can talk about my trips. I'm not a great writer, so talking is the next best thing. But that's a got to be a key bit of advice, right? If you're travelling, at least journal or note down what you do because you do forget little details. Yeah, it it is a good thing, even if it's just jotting, you know, or or putting notes in your phone. Mm. But uh, if you write, you know, for instance, Vienna, excellent Turkish restaurant called, you know, and and there really is an excellent Turkish restaurant that I went to. (laughs) And you'll have it, you know, or you can tell people when they say, oh, you went to Vienna, where did you eat? Yeah. So it is good to make notes. Yeah. And I guess you can use them later on if you want to write a memoir or a book or even do a podcast. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But I mean, for me, it was more like I was, I knew I was going to be a writer. So I was going to yeah. write anyway. So I was writing all the time. Wake up in the morning, you pick up your cup of tea and a pen. <laughs> Dream lifestyle, that. That's it. 
I was saying to my partner today, like today has been quite busy. So I had an interview this morning. So I woke up, uh, done the interview, went for a coffee, done a bit of reading. Now we're doing this interview. I'm like, oh, that's a dream day. I just need to get paid for it. That's the only thing. There you go. That's <laughs> yeah, true. That's the only thing, yeah. right? Yeah, there you go. Okay, before we get into the book, uh, I just want to touch on, I do this with most people, just three countries that maybe are your favorites, um, traveling abroad, like any ones you want to especially recommend. I know we're going to touch on quite a few from the book, but you've got three here. So number one, you said all over the US. Well, you know what? I kind of didn't realize that uh, these are favorite countries to travel to. And putting aside the fact that, I mean, I I think it's so, um, you can, you can fa- be fascinated in Canada and the US. Mm. without going i call that not going overseas because you know canada <laughs> okay <laughs> we're, we're wannabe canadians so. okay <laughs> but you know the uh the national parks in our oh. countries are just you know unparalleled and so that's why i do love traveling here we're big hikers and mm. you know you're a big camper and and swim we'll jump into almost any lake we find so <laughs> you know i do love the parks in Canada and the US. But as for favorite countries, I just think Tanzania is got it all. It's fascinating. And, you know, we could talk more about that later mm. when we get into that chapter. But you've got everything from game parks and those amazing mountains like Kilimanjaro and Mount Meru to um, islands, you know, Zanzibar. And, you know, people speak English. Most people will be able to, and they're extremely uh, welcoming and warm people. So it's just a wonderful place to travel. Yeah, Tanzania is high on my list. I think we were sitting in uh, Oman, in Muscat. Um, we're flying to Nepal, actually. I just picked up a leaflet. I was like, oh, they fly to Tanz- uh, Tanzania. Well, we go to Zanzibar, direct flight. I'm like, oh, we could have gone there. <laughs> Yeah, but, that, that, but Zanzibar that, looks incredible. That, it is a, incredible. In fact, when we get to the favorite beaches part, that, that's oh, yeah. my favorite beach. Yeah. Okay. They look incredible there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let's get to the book. So, Circling Home. So, the first chapter was straight in to Ivory Coast. You made the move with Stefan, your, your partner, to go and live in. Is it Abidjan? Is that how you pronounce that? Abidjan. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what I found very interesting straight off the bat is it's always good to hear the good things, but also I think it's key to hear the struggles maybe of adapting to a new culture. So it's a fascinating chapter. And I got here, it must have been a culture shock for you, landing in a completely different culture to where you've been before. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> it was culture shock. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Part of that being the fact that, uh, you know, we landed in a country where we were a tiny minority, whites are in the minority. And mm-hmm. it was the first time for me, at, you know, at age 40, much less for my kids. My kids were small enough that they didn't notice and they they couldn't tell the difference between their, you know, their playmates. Um, they were one and four when we moved there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we put them in a local preschool because we wanted them to learn French. French was the um, language, the official language. And we wanted them to meet kids from the neighborhood so they'd have people to play with. Um, and the interesting thing about being part of a minority is um, that I, I felt like 
for the Ivorians, they were so used to French people that um, they didn't seem to, I mean, they, they didn't have a big color bar as, you know, many of us in the U.S. have had in historically. Um, the bigger difference is the economic divide, you know, and people, there were many wealthy Africans in Abidjan because it was the base for the African Development Bank. So the ADB brought lots of professionals from all over Europe, and they had big houses, and they had, you know, they hired people to clean and cook and, and do things for them, just like most expat uh, diplomats do. So in our case, we had, we were under the umbrella of the American embassy because my husband works for the Centers for Disease Control. So we're not State Department employees, but it's still U.S. government. So we were required to have a guard 24-7 outside our gate. And the guard would screen people, keep people from coming in, really was a deterrent more than anything else. Hmm. Um, acts of terrorism were kind of on the rise then in the 90s. And so you had uh, always a man standing outside with just a billy club. He didn't have a gun. But we lived behind um, cinder block walls that were 10 feet high and topped with barbed wire, that kind of thing. And at first that, you know, you feel a little isolated and we were living behind these big walls, which we hadn't done before. But in time, that man who's uh, at your gate 24-7, you get to know him so well because you're always passing each other in the yard and he's asking about the kids and the kids are running out to play with him. And, <laughs> you know, they eventually would uh, chase each other around the yard with squirt guns and draw animals with chalk on the gates and, you know, just while away the time that way, because the men out there were bored and the kids were sometimes bored. So um, it was a great way to get to know people uh, who were so different from us, not just being from a different culture and country, you know, and being Ivorians, but also from a very different economic background. And these were people that were making $100 a month for working 12-hour days, six days a week. That's a crazy so, thing, isn't it? Right. Talk about a divide. Mm. And I think that was something that I had to deal with whenever we moved to Africa, when we moved to Tanzania as well. I hated the... the uh, the discrepancy, you know, between us and the fact that we were always on the giving end and people, you know, who worked for such small wages always had to be on the receiving end. Although they gave, they gave things that they could give, like uh, the guard would shimmy up the coconut tree and bring down cocos for the kids, or his wife would make uh, a special dish for us that was mm -hmm. Ivorian. And so, it was a very nice exchange, and we got to know these guards and uh, the people that we did hire. We hired a a woman to help uh, clean a couple days a week and a man to help cook because my husband had to host dinners for Ivorian colleagues and other expats. And those people kind of really became close to our family, and they provided a window into a very different world from the expat life you know you could you could really 
have contact with local people and go to their homes. I went to their homes several times. I met their families. So that was uh, part of the culture shock. They helped ease that because they were so friendly. We were friendly with them. Um, they made us feel more at home. That was part of finding home there. The other part of the culture shock is the safety issue. We never had to be so concerned about, um, you know, um, home burglaries, carjackings. There were quite a few carjackings in Abidjan. Men with guns would come and just corral your car and say, get out. You hope they let you get out. <laughs> um, yeah. And we were warned about this from day one. When you arrive in the country, the U.S. Embassy gives you a security briefing. So it kind of fanned all these fears in my mind and made me so worried that I didn't want to drive anywhere or go anywhere on my own without my husband for a couple of weeks. And uh, I very quickly learned that just like any big city in the U.S., you, you learn where you can go during the day and where you shouldn't. So you you learn your your where how to navigate your whereabouts and then stop being afraid. Yeah, I think that's probable in the the chapter that you just had to make that leap where you, you said you, you drive to the market and then back and then it's like little steps, right? You can then drive exactly. to maybe a, a local park or something. So yeah. Just a bit a bit of confidence and maybe just seeing it firsthand and just accepting that their advice is always worst case scenario, I guess. Yeah, and the other thing I very quickly knew how to do was to make friends. And I I wanted to find women who were living in the culture and had adapted seamlessly. And they knew, uh, they felt very much at home there. They weren't afraid. And so I, went, I met women at um, receptions and different events and... Uh, at book groups, a couple of women invited me to an expat book group. And in that book group were a number of women who were married to Ivorian men. And one of them, a woman named Carol Squire, was uh, had been living in, she went to Ivory Coast as a Peace Corps volunteer in 1980. So she had already been there for almost 15 years. And she was a, a really a key person in connecting me with other women because she was married to an Ivorian man, had started several businesses there. And they were all businesses. She had a big uh, social uh, mission to spread the word about, teach people how not to get AIDS. Mm -hmm. So she was involved in the earliest social marketing campaigns, um, setting up info booths and giving out condoms and doing workshops in all kinds of places, schools, businesses. So she was a key person. And once I met her and saw how fearless she was driving anywhere in town and, you know, she said, oh, that's silly. You don't have to be worried about home burglaries and this and that. It's probably not going to happen. If it does, you'll survive. So, <laughs> <laughs> So alongside that is the language as well. So I guess you made an effort to learn French. I did. I um, already had a base from university, but, uh, you know, we don't learn so well in the U.S. because we aren't thrown into, we aren't doing immersion. 
yeah. uh, l language learning. But I did uh, take classes there and I, I asked all the people around us, the guard, the lady who came a couple days a week to clean for us, to speak only French to me and the children. And so that helped us to really get immersed in the language. Yeah, because you mentioned your children being so young, it's very easy for them to pick it up. They can then converse in their peers, but also the people around the house or any events that you have, right? I mean, that's a great uh, way to bring up, isn't it, your kids, because they get all this culture, but language as well. And almost like they can, because they're so young, they just pick up French and they can go like even further ahead. Yeah, they didn't have to study. They, got, yeah, they, they were little sponges. <laughs> you know, They just kind of oh. absorbed it. And now they're fluent. They have yeah. good ears. They, they have great accents. This is a Patreon shout out to Laura from the Swamp Soup Stickers, who has contributed £5 to the podcast on my Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate it. And it helps the podcast to keep going in the future. If you're interested, head to the show notes where you'll find a link to my Patreon. The website address is patreon.com forward slash Wigginet Travel Podcast. For five English pounds, you will receive some trendy stickers from myself and the post, a shout out on each episode, and also my digital travel planner by email. Thank you for your support. Yeah, crazy. Um, can we touch on Stefan's work? Because that's very important sure. to the whole book, because it's uh, a lot of it's based on where he's getting job offers. But can you explain what he was doing in the 90s with AIDS, please? So he was, he's a doctor epidemiologist and epidemiologist studies diseases, the course of diseases. In the 1990s, AIDS, uh, we knew already what the main modes of transmission were, that it was through sexual uh, con contact um, or blood, like through needles, ex needle exchanges, that kind of thing. But what we didn't know is how easily it was transmitted. So when I took my kids uh, to Abidjan in 1993, I was afraid for them. I was worried about them getting malaria, AIDS, TB. There were all kinds of things they could get. Um, over the course of six years, which is how long we ended up staying in Ivory Coast, Stefan's work was mostly based are focused on <clears throat> studying um, where the main populations of people were that had HIV and how to how to help them not spread it, how to help other people to get the message. Um, treatment was very difficult then because there were no medications that would completely stop the spread of AIDS. Um, that was hard because the guard we got to know best at the very beginning of our stay there within a year developed AIDS and had a very miserable, uh, slow death. And so it was hard to see that and not be able to do anything for him. Um, but they were able to, at uh, my husband's work, they were also, they were doing research, surveillance, surveillance and whatever care and treatment counseling they could give to um, family members for how to take care of their people with AIDS. And the um, research he was doing helped greatly in slowing the 
spread of AIDS from mothers to infants because he learned that through studies they learned that um, if the if the mothers took uh, what, what was then something like AZT that um, it, they would not pass it on to their babies in utero so they would take that before and after delivery so many fewer babies were getting were being born with AIDS um, also they did a study on um, the opportunistic infections that people die of when they get AIDS like they often die of pneumonia or TB. Yeah. And if they took Bactrim, this is one of his studies, then it would slow this, the uh, development of the disease and prevent, you know, like instant death. So um, what changed in my husband's work? I'm going to jump ahead a couple of years yeah. because we came back to Atlanta in 1999. And within, by the end of that time, there were good uh, medications for fighting AIDS and for and people could live a normal lifespan if they took these meds. Um, of course, it was in the Western world first. That's where most of these medicines were developed. Triple therapy is what it was called. Mm -hmm. And um, in 19, no, 2003, uh, President George Bush convinced the Republicans and the Democrats to both agree on a huge infusion of money into African countries, especially, but other countries in the world to um, give these life-saving medications to as many people with HIV as they could. It's called the PEPFAR program or the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And that became a, a huge focus of my husband's work. It's why he wanted to go back to Tanzania, um, because suddenly there were billions of dollars. They, I think they, they committed $50 billion to various countries. And all this money was going into providing these life-saving medications to as many people as possible. So it was a much more upbeat um bend to his work and he was you know really trying to work with other agencies partners um ngos in tanzania to get as many people as possible on these medications so there you have it in a nutshell my husband's work amazing work yeah yeah and the nice thing for me was that i was a journalist i wanted to go out and see as much as i could mm. So I went with him on a number of home health visits to see what was going on with care and treatment. And I documented it and I wrote some articles about it. And that, so that's in the book as well, talking about um, the different, the way people reacted to this sudden um, gift of medications and, and who benefited from it. Yeah, it's just such a, crazy thought that my generation so as in your kids as well same same age similar age we just don't appreciate how big right. a thing that was that back then right we obviously right. grew up into once we we're teenagers like that's not even a thing <laughs> like yeah. that's that's really on people's minds this is crazy how things move on yes well thankfully it's a good thing that yeah uh, you don't have to worry about it i'm glad but then there's something else always comes along. COVID of course, exists. like COVID. <laughs> yeah. right? There's always something, right? <laughs> yeah, COVID kills too, or it, it was. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. different subject, right? 
And what I, I loved about this chapter is the relationship. So I, I felt that you had kind of two, really. You had your expat and embassy friends who are key because they can relate to the struggles that you had, but also Ravel in the, in the good times and you shared some good times. But also, the, I guess, the local uh, relationships you had that give you a bit more perspective on the local community and the city around you. So I really liked like hearing about these characters, especially uh, Gladys. I uh, yeah. I think the way you wrote about her, I think it's probably my favourite character in the whole book, just because of how important she was too, but also she was that soundboard and when you had to leave Ivory Coast, it's quite sad and you get to go back and then see her again. So yeah, Gladys seems like an amazing person. You know, I'm, well, not, I'm not singing how I'm like, what yeah, else, no. but she looks and sounds incredible. Well, I think we were closest to her, the children and me. And we are still in touch. She'll she'll pop up with an email every now and then and say, oh, I finally stopped working as a cook or whatever for some uh, expat. And now she has her own business. And oh, so, yeah, she's an egg egg seller. So she, she gets oh. eggs from various uh, farms and different places and then brings them to the market and sells them. So she's her own boss. She's happy about that. The same with our guard, uh, Usman, who Usman, also yeah. yeah, became very close to us. I, I hear from him from time to time. And he had a dream when he retired from at age 60 from that very long, arduous job of guarding houses, of owning his own business. And so he bought a small shop. He went back to Ghana, um, where his family was, and he bought a small shop in the marketplace. And now he's running his own shop. And every now and then he asks us for help or he sends a report on how his daughter's doing. His daughter was able to go through secretarial school and got a good job. So we're really happy to keep up with, you know, people that meant a lot to us 25 years ago. Yes, that shows how strong the the relationships are, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh and also what was interesting about those guys is a lot of them are not Ivorian as well. They're from other countries in Africa. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, Ivory Coast, uh, Abidjan was called the Paris of uh, West Africa because it's the its economy was booming more than anybody, any other country, city. And um, so a lot of the people that worked around us were either from Burkina Faso, Ghana, Mali, uh, Nigeria, neighboring countries. And that's still the case. Ivory Coast is still booming. It's still the center in West Africa for business. And the African Development Bank is still there. So you have business going on at high levels and at, you know, all different levels. Yeah, I think it's like, in my my view, it's like them in Nigeria, in that part of the world. They must be two big powerhouses. Powerhouses. um, Uh Just like lots of people, lots of economy. Yeah, it must be places. I, I think be. the difference is Nigeria has just a much bigger population. So yeah. a lot more to deal with when it comes to poverty and, you know, all kinds of problems. But yeah. Okay. And I love the relationship between your kids and these people working in, in your house and stuff with you. But also you did mention it just took a few months because of you're getting ill quite a bit. You know, new bacteria, maybe different types of stuff going on with food or your kids were going to school and contracting stuff. So that took a few months to get through as well, right? Because it was getting you down a bit by the sounds of it. It did. Yeah. The first six months, I'd say, were were really tough because the kids were sick off and on. You know, kids are sick when they're young anyway, but mm. they just had different kinds of things there. And 
you know, uh, kids here maybe wouldn't come in contact with Shigella or Giardia as much. Um, I think Shigella is a bacteria, whereas Giardia is a parasite. And yeah. um, what we did have was we had access to the U.S. Embassy Health Unit, and they had this, well, so with Shigella, once they diagnosed it, they had a lab there, and we had a very good lab. She became a close friend the lab tech and she found the shigella in uh the the kids they brought it home from school and it's just a course of antibiotics will knock it out and then with parasites um the health unit had this one pill that was like the bomb and you would take this one pill and the bomb would kill all parasites anything <laughs> that you even done so we liked to take the bomb when we came back to the U.S. and make sure we weren't bringing too much with us. <laughs> Interesting but, you know, name. <laughs> yeah, you, you learn very quickly how to wash your fresh vegetables, mm -hmm. to cook most of them. If, if you wanted to eat um, fresh fruits or lettuce and that kind of thing, uh, you had to wash it in a, a bath of water that had a, a tablespoon or two of bleach in it and the bleach killed ah okay various mm. critters in there so <laughs> that's a good that's a good tip for maybe some even to yeah maybe not so yes. i don't know what the word would be not hygienic but like where parasites and stuff yeah. happen yeah. yeah a little bit of bleach will do the trick <laughs> yeah and what i did like about this uh chapter as i mentioned uh your kids aaron and elena they're just getting stuck in like they play with the kids they're happy to you know speak french and just do anything right you can like give them to the people in your house or they're going to some expat friends to play with their kids they really were like getting involved in the community right and as i i have a story in the and i'd like to do that as my reading at book events about our trip to senegal one easter when we just happened to take a taxi to a, a beach on the coast of senegal after we were in Dakar for a few days and the taxi driver was so friendly and he was explaining why there were so many goats on the road. They were going to be killed later that day for Tabaski, their holy feast for Muslims. And he spontaneously invited us to his house. And while we were waiting for his uh, goat to be slaughtered, dismembered, and then cooked, <laughs> disemboweled, um, the kids ran off and played with the village children and we hardly saw them all afternoon and they were just happy as could be. And my son who was, uh, I think he was eight at the time still remembers that as a highlight of his childhood that he could play with kids anywhere. And we weren't afraid. They weren't afraid. You know, that was after several years of living in the country. Yeah. Interesting contrast, which we'll come to between that, and like Tanzania and even Atlanta to a point in between because obviously as they get older there's different issues that come up um so we'll, we'll touch on that as we go through but yeah I was then gonna ask like was there some trips like in amongst that six seven years in the Ivory Coast where you would recommend like people within the area just to go and check out so you mentioned that beach in Senegal but like is there other parts of Ivory Coast as well yeah, Ivory Coast has beautiful beaches too. Um, I write about one beach that we went to called Monagaga, and it uh, only had one 
uh, lodge sort of place where we stayed. And it was brand new when we went there. Now, you know, 20 years later, I'm sure it's much more developed, as is the whole coast. Um, Assini is a part, a beach in Ivory Coast where lots of expats go and have houses, as well as wealthy Ivorians. Um, and it's a beautiful stretch of beach. I've gone back several times to visit uh, Ivory Coast and to see friends, and including Gladys and Usman. And I write about my friend Angie, who has a real love for Ivory Coast and uh, a sense of mission. She was a nurse in four or five African countries for 20 years. And she goes back to Ivory Coast three or four times a year because she's rebuilt a school after the Civil War there. She, she took it upon herself and her family to rebuild a little school. And it's just booming now it only had it had less than 100 students 10 years ago when she started her rebuilding project and now it's got over 600 and other schools are going to use it as a model for how to re yeah. rebuild their schools so is that the story when the chief came around yes like, just like just like very quiet like yes you can do that like <laughs> exactly. she, she would like agree to how much land they could use and yeah 80 year old woman <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's he awesome. was great. <laughs> and a few more things about Ivory Coast. Maybe from your experiences there, I noticed in this chapter you were busy. So you're making sure you go into writing groups, you're doing walks, you're getting to as many events as possible. Is that key to maybe adapting yes. to a new life? Yeah. And volunteering. I think volunteer work is really key. And so I um, jumped in whenever I could. I was like the room mother in my kids' schools but also when our school was at the international school was a wonderful school. It attracted amazing teachers from all over the world, from Australia, the UK, Germany, the Netherlands, the US. And they're very highly trained, um, enthusiastic young teachers who are so excited to be living and working abroad and having everything taken care of from their housing <laughs> to, you know, uh, getting paid for living in another country. So um, I, I would volunteer as like the UN day coordinator and, you know, try to bring all the people together from all these different nationalities. It was quite a um, mediating trick to get people to agree and, and to, to work together but it was fun keeps you busy meet lots of new friends uh yeah i think volunteering is key in in places like that yeah okay and your parents visit as well that they quite, did and that's a very nice part of the chapter where they get to see where you live and they meet all the people that you know very yes, nice yes and my father at uh at 75 uh, you know, grew up in Pennsylvania in a poor coal mining town. And, and he just was so appreciative and said, you know, I'll never be the same after this, mm. after this two week trip. And I, uh, you know, he really meant it. Yeah. That's key, isn't yeah. it? Like that, that mm -hmm. they can relate to what you're seeing. I know it's only for two weeks, but right. It's, it's just nice to have maybe someone like a sibling or a parent, like understand and Definitely. not just write it off. Yeah. 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 That's very nice. And then it's also it's also why I kept in touch with friends over the years. Like when I go to 
Europe. If I want to go to Norway, I have a great friend from Tanzania to stay with. Mm -hmm. If I go to Spain, I have a great friend from, you know, Ivory Coast to stay with and in Germany. And the nice thing is when you reconnect with these people, they know exactly where you came from and they know your kids from a young age. It's because uh, Carol lives near you now, right? Carol is on Whidbey Island. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Fairly, yeah, where I went, obviously. And that was a wonderful coincidence. She came to my yeah. book launch, and she's very much in my life again. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and to finish on the Ivory Coast, it's a bit sad at the end because uh, Stefan's contract was up. You're going back to Atlanta, and obviously you get to know these characters in this chapter, and then suddenly you've got to leave, and it's a bit sad at the end, and which... It's a bit sweet because you pre- appreciate, ah, they were proper strong relationships, but then you've got to move on to the next chapter. The sad thing in leaving Ivory Coast in, you know, 1999 was that there, the internet wasn't, mm. wasn't there yet. It wasn't very developed. And so these people, we, you know, we thought we were closing a door that would never open again. We wouldn't see them. Um, we wouldn't hear from them. We couldn't find out how they were doing. Mm. But just a few years later, they did get uh, email addresses and they started writing and I did go back to visit. So um, it wasn't so sad. I mean, it was sad leaving, but but it was a, a nice turn of events that we always we've kept in touch for 25 years now. Yeah, we talk about this sometimes podcast about the early days of traveling because now it's Internet based again. That's it. Yeah. Our generation is used to this. I was like thinking, imagine you travel in the 80s or something and like... Yeah, with might, no you, cell phones. You, no imagine. cell phones. You might have an address. You might have a phone number. But then there must right. be loads of people people meet on the travels and then don't see again. Unless like now they can reconnect and find them on Facebook or whatever. But there must be a period of time for like 20 years. You just don't know where they, where they are, how, to, how they're being or whatever. Well, and if my uh, husband, he would he traveled a lot in Africa before we met and before he went there to work. He was out there doing, you know, just traveling or doing rotations for medical school. Mm. And his mother would say goodbye to him in the U.S. and wouldn't know where he was for months. Mm. They, you know, there was no <laughs> communication. So Different world. Yeah, different world. <laughs> Couldn't send him money. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to, as you go through the book, you move to different places. We're going to touch. Obviously, go to Tanzania. It's very important. But before that was in between those two places was Atlanta. So you're going back to USA. Um, interesting chapter because I think the kids are important bit in this sort of chapter because they have to go back to a country they're born in and speak the natural language that maybe not necessarily feel like they belong there. Um, how was your initial reactions to going back to USA, Atlanta as well? The... Uh... It was a, a bit of a relief at first, not to have to live behind high walls and mm. um, to not feel like a foreigner all the time when you went out and to not look over your shoulder, you know, and worry about carjackers. That's just not ha- done that much in Atlanta. They do yeah. other things, but they don't <laughs> do that. <laughs> uh, the kids, um, one of my children my daughter is extremely flexible and an extrovert and so she had an easier time making friends for my son it was harder uh he missed he was nine so he was old enough to really Mm. miss the guards the uh gladys the other people in his life 
his best friends from school went off to other countries. So he just, you know, it's a, it's a real sense of loss that third culture kids is what they're called, TCKs who grew up in other countries and cultures. And they, they have to grieve and go through this loss that uh, is new to them. So that was hard. But on the other hand, um, my parents lived nearby in Atlanta. They had uncles and aunts, my kids, and cousins. And so they were reconnecting with people who they had seen over the years, because we always visited every year. Mm-hmm. We visited the U.S. So for them, it was nice to be closer to family again. And they did find ways to reconnect. Like for my son, it happened to be Cub Scouts because the kids in the neighborhood had this wonderful guy who uh, was the den leader. He was like Mr. Rogers on steroids. He was so (laughs) sweet. (laughs) And so they had a, he had a great experience with Cub Scouts and ended up going all the way through to Eagle Scout because his best friends were all in that group. Mm Mm-hmm. And he did things like he learned to play ultimate because he was never uh, uh, into American sports, football, baseball, and all that. He didn't grow up with it. So he picked up different games that uh, I think are more popular in international schools. So I think we very quickly, after a year or so, got used to living in the U.S. It wasn't hard. But what also happens is you kind of get bored a little bit because you're used to a fast uh, and exciting life where, hey, it's Easter vacation. What country do you want to go to this time? (laughs) (laughs) You want to go to Togo or Ghana? Where would you (laughs) like to go? So uh, I think by the time, you know, five years passed quickly in Atlanta. And by the time my husband especially got bored and wanted to be back out in the field, And particularly when there was all this money going out for this uh, new AIDS treatment program, the PEPFAR program. So he was anxious to get back in the field. He wanted to go to Africa again. And when he suggested Ivory Coast, uh, Tanzania, the kids, I was worried about them not wanting to leave in Mm. high school and junior high. They jumped for it. You know, they were so eager. They said, yeah, let's go do it. So we did. (laughs) <laughs> and also in this chapter which kind of relates to later in the book there are some family health problems that maybe uh right. justified you going back to Atlanta and being close to your family yeah yeah that's the, that's one of the hard parts for expats is being far away from aging parents and you know all the uh expats I was around dreaded the call in the night when you would hear about a parent mm. who had a heart attack or you know, you couldn't get home in time. Yeah. And that yeah. did, you know, both my husband's mother and my father were having health issues. So it made it, it made it nice to be back home. Um, and that was one of the hard things about deciding to go back overseas is to leave them again. Yeah. That's one of the most unfortunate parts, even just traveling and being an expat. Yeah, unfortunately, I had that in India, uh, the worst case for my for my nan. So that's all sudden, middle of the night. Yeah, my mum's not my mum's not a speaker. So when she rings at five a.m., I'm like, mm, yeah, what's oh, that about? Sorry. So that yeah. that is just the, one of the things that yeah, I think, the, I think the feeling that probably comes the feeling apart from grief is probably guilt, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, yep. that's probably the that's biggest true feeling. Too. 
So that's part of the unfortunate things of being traveling or living abroad. Um, but I love the bit in this chapter when I felt like you maybe had to rush to get out of Ivory Coast. I don't know. It felt like maybe a bit rushed, but you both went back. So you went back to Ivory Coast, say goodbye properly. And Stefan went with Aaron as well, just to say goodbye. And he loved going back and seeing all the guys again. And he's on the phone too. So that was quite nice to see. Yeah, it was closure yeah. for all of us. Yes, and that, closure, that yeah. is something that um, I, I do recommend if expats, you know, if you take your kids back home and they're really mourning the loss of friendships and that kind of thing, give them the option of going back at some point in the following year or two just to say hello and goodbye again. Yeah, crucial. And then we're off to Tanzania. So I think we talked about this earlier. Tanzania is high on my list to go to. And I felt like straight away you were experienced. You're like, okay, Tanzania, new country. I know to go here. I know what I've got to do. Uh, slightly older kids as well. Um, how excited were you to go to Tanzania, first off? I was I was all in for this one. I, yeah. I had been a reluctant, um, what they call trailing spouse, which is, you know, someone who has to travel for the other person's job. But this time I was I was really game. And I was, I knew it would be a limited time that we wouldn't stay as long as we had in Ivory Coast, mostly for our parents' health reasons, yeah. also because our kids would be out of the house and grown uh, or off to college. So I wanted to make the most of things from the get-go and just went out and looked in the first couple of months for volunteer work. I started tutoring local school kids in uh, English because uh, in Tanzania, Swahili is the main language, mm -hmm. but kids have to pass English exams in order to go on to secondary school, a very hard uh, and onerous thing for them to face. So yeah. I was helping in a, uh, an elementary school to get help them in English, to get the English up to par for passing these national exams. And somebody offered me a uh, a writing gig, which was a monthly column in a magazine called Dar Guide. And so I took that on. And that was fun because I could make, I could go out and interview, you know, the fishermen, the fishmongers at the fish market or somebody at an orphanage who was taking care of, you know, 14 um, AIDS orphans or that kind of thing. Uh, got around a lot. It got me out and around. I joined women's groups, uh, book group, started a book group. And and whenever anybody mentioned, oh, there's an embassy trip going to Zanzibar to learn Swahili, I said, I'm in, you know, and what's you wrong go. with, yeah. <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with learning Swahili yeah. in Zanzibar, right? On a paradise island, yeah, it doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> yeah, not too bad. So I picked up some Swahili um, for Easter, uh, fall break. You know, we were always looking for great trips to take with the family because it was the last couple of years we'd be all together before my son went off to college. And we went one weekend to Mafia Island, which was the most idyllic um, snorkeling and diving mm. we could find. Rustic. Uh, yeah, rustic and yet so cool. I mean, yeah. it's nice not to have big, huge resort hotels and things yeah, like yeah. that. That was yeah, fun. Aaron loved his diving there, didn't he? Loved the diving. He did yeah. a great uh, 
he had to do, you know, uh, Americans aren't as familiar with the IB program. You should probably know it better. Um, but he was doing an IB high school diploma. And you have to do a special project in 10th grade. So he decided to do a diving guide to sites around Tanzania. So That's we niche. had to. <laughs> Yeah, but we he got to go to all these. Yeah. Guys. Mom, I've got to go. I've got to go to Pemba. I've got to go to Mafia. Uh, and then in this first year, you were yeah, you were out and about. So Zanzibar, you mentioned you're doing all these trips. And what I could get from the writing was that all these amazing landscapes and things you're seeing, the animals, the just breathtaking by the sounds of it. Yeah, that's that's uh, one of the big differences in our. Um, sojourn in Tanzania as opposed to Ivory Coast was that Tanzania is, you know, rightfully famous for all the landscapes, you know, the beautiful Serengeti, the mountains, the uh, islands, all of that. Whereas Ivory Coast, um, it's a tropical country in the southern part where we lived. Um, the Sahara, it's more desert-like in the northern part. But rather than the landscapes, what um, was remarkable to me in Ivory Coast were the cultural offerings. And they have much older traditions, the different um, ethnic groups or tribes, whatever you would call them. Um, and they all had very unique dances that they would do with masks. The dance was phenomenal. I mean, if I could go to any cultural event again I would go to Ivory Coast to the dance you know festivals mm -hmm. because you would just see in the most incredible cultural offerings so yeah in Tanzania we weren't doing as much um, we didn't go to you know performances as much of that kind of thing but we were out on the land as much as we could be we took trips together as a family we went into we hiked Mount Meru which is the second highest peak uh, dragged our daughter up and down. <laughs> she was a, at first an unwilling participant, but she did have uh, another, we had another family along and she had kids her age. So she was happy enough with them. But, uh, you know, we went to all the game parks and we trekked across the Ngorongoro Highlands. So all these wonderful trips that we could do over a period of, you know, three years rather than rush it all into a number of weeks. Mm. And yeah. as, as residents, we got, you know, much lower prices for safaris and permits to parks like Kilimanjaro National Park. We got lower rates with um, local guide companies that would take us on these trips and guide us on these trips. So, yeah, it was a fortunate position to be in. And where were you based, like, living? Was that the capital? Yeah, Dar es Salaam. Um, How did that compare to Abidjan? Very different. Not a, not a tropical city. It's a much more uh, dry. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is right on the water, whereas Abidjan was on a um, lagoon. So it was inland a bit. So it made it hotter and more buggy. Um, but Dar es Salaam is right on the ocean. We lived around the corner from a bay where we would swim mm. three or three times a week. 
um, and you can motor out to islands just literally, you know, half an hour away. Dream. So it was it was it was a wonderful place to live. Yeah, kids loved it too. Yeah, so the kids are getting older, aren't they? And I think they are getting chapter. older, getting getting, getting into all kinds of things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, they're up to some stuff uh, with the locals or with friends or whatever. As kids will do. Yeah, so that was like a different dynamic, right? Because I think you said oh, back in the day, you just take them to your friends and they play with the kids, but now they're saying no or they want to do their own things. So that was a different dynamic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and there are more things to worry about with teenagers. You know, hmm. you have to worry about um, drunk drivers and parties and things like that um not sure where your kids are all the time <laughs> so <laughs> it's got trust a process hope it goes well. right right <laughs> there were some amazing trips in this chapter so there was the zanzibar that you said the month there that sounds idyllic on my list uh sounds like i had a great time there uh you went to madagascar as well yeah madagascar is a really interesting place um Lots of in, in that one huge island. I think it's mm. the size of Texas. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. You have, again, rainforest in the east. So it rains all the time. That's where the lemurs mostly are. Mm -hmm. um, then you have more of sort of the Sahara-like uh, dryness in the north. Um, only spent a week there, but it was enough to to finally come across some lemurs have them land on my shoulders <laughs> <laughs> that was fun yeah made some good friends there you, you take trips like this you you make fast friends you do because i guess you are doing stuff all day every day for the trip uh -huh. hiking seeing each other at their best and worst helping yeah. each other out when you fall down Literally. maybe maybe interacting with opposites maybe like uh, you mentioned ambassador at the time yeah maybe not, maybe not your cup of tea but you got to realize that uh, maybe underneath the maybe the public image there's there's someone there that you could like exactly and uh, the lesson there to me was that um you know being resilient and tolerant and open-minded wasn't just about accepting other cultures and saying yeah well they allow polygamy in ivory coast it's cool um, but also accepting your own compatriots and that have very different political views. Mm. Um, so, you, you know, being tolerant has to be a lot more than just, oh, it's fun to see a different culture. Yeah, they can yeah, do yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah it was, a, it was a, a good, hard lesson for me. Yeah. And then Mount Kilimanjaro was a interesting part because you achieved a summit and then... You had a little group together. Some were doing better than others. Inter interesting twist at the end. That was an interesting trip as a whole. You got to go up and hike and tent on the mountain and kind of look, you know, with local guides and get to a place where you can achieve something like, oh, I can see the view. How was that? How did that shape maybe yourself in terms of how you viewed what you could achieve? Um. I think I had to, you know, I was in my 50s then, and I did have, I had had hip bursitis pretty seriously earlier. So it was slowing me down a bit, but I was able to push past it and get to um, one of the summits on Kilimanjaro. The ultimate summit kind of eluded me um, 
for various reasons, but um, yes, and there is there were some group dynamics that led to a kind of a dangerous situation. Um, but we won't tell everything about that chapter because we want people to read the yeah, book yeah, yeah. too, right? We'll leave a cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's yeah. let's have a cliffhanger thrown in there. Yeah, it's a great it's a great read. And then to finish Tanzania, obviously leave in the end because the the contract comes up. Was that a hard leave as well? It was a very hard leave because yeah. it was the place I loved living the most. Um, and. But my my father was fading. I knew he didn't have much longer to live. Stefan's mother was also not doing well. My our son was going off to college. We didn't want to be two long flights away yeah. from him. And our daughter wasn't headed for an academic uh, future with you know university. She really wanted to act and sing. She was a, she had an amazing voice. She has an amazing voice. Um, and we knew she could get a lot better training and opportunities in the U.S. So even though it was hardest for her to leave because she was in the middle of high school, she had two years left of, you know, secondary school. Um, we we told her she had to come back with us. We didn't want to leave her there. <laughs> and in the in the end, I mean, of course, parents were always right. And. <laughs> I'm very glad she's with the partner she's with now in the UK rather than the boyfriend she had back then. <laughs> oh, interesting. I didn't and, get I, that and I think she'd say the same thing. Oh, I, I didn't get that feeling from the book. Maybe like, maybe because they're quite young and they had ideas to go and live in the US. I didn't get the feeling that he seemed like bad or anything like that. It's just that he, quite, he wasn't. quite young. Yeah. He wasn't bad. They were quite young and yeah. too young to make decisions, life yeah. uh, altering decisions. Mm. And, you know, just knowing, uh, having heard where he is now and where the course his life took and where she is now, I just, it wasn't a good match. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Good decision then. So then you leave Tanzania, lots of relationships, lots of seeing, lots of travel in this one. In this chapter really liked it got the sort of travel juices flowing a little bit there i was like oh good i, to, I just need to go great good yeah and that's what people should feel when they read that she returned to atlanta and then a few years there uh, family stuff as well and then you're off again to switzerland but this time it's just you and stefan hey yeah just a quick one. I just want to say there are many ways to support this podcast. You can buy me a coffee and help support the podcast with $5. Or you can go to my merch store with the affiliate link with TeePublic, where there's plenty of merch available to buy, such as t-shirts, jumpers, hoodies, and also some children's clothing. Thirdly, which is free, you can also rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, or Good Pods. Also, you can find me on social media on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Simply just search for Winging It Travel Podcast and you'll find me displaying all my social media content for traveling, podcast and other stuff. Thank you. And so the Switzerland bit was very interesting because I felt like there was a feeling of emptiness syndrome a little bit because the kids are not there anymore. The they're, they're, they're adults are out and about doing their own stuff and Stefan's working as per usual, like long hours. So you were there kind of by yourself and had to 
do it over again in terms of finding your feet and getting used to the culture? Yeah, the hard thing that um, expats learn is that it's very easy to meet people and get involved through your children. And it's a lot harder if you've had that experience and then you go overseas and there's no kids and there's no instant connection that way. Mm. Um, if you went without kids to begin with and you knew how to make connections, and I think it's much easier in this day and age because you know you have meetups and you have uh, social connections that you can make um, much more easily than we could when we were traveling a decade ago or more. Mm. Um, Switzerland was, uh, a place where, well, Geneva in particular, um, where there were lots of other foreigners because, you know, they're all there working for the United Nations, mm -hmm. WHO, so many different international organizations. So you don't find as many residents there, um, which made it harder to connect to because a lot of these foreigners, they're busy, you know, they're yeah. working long hours uh they come home they want to only be with their families it's kind of more isolating mm. in a lot of ways plus uh there aren't as many volunteer opportunities because there aren't many you know there's not such a big economic divide or, or maybe there is but i didn't find many volunteer opportunities switzerland's an interesting country right we went there we went there this year and they've got very pretty cities yeah but it's just, and it's a stunning country. Like you've got the Alps and stuff like that. I get it, but it can seem a bit grey, a bit cold, and even the people yeah. can seem a bit, bit cold. I think they're known they for that a little bit. They are known for that a little bit. There are, um, you know, wonderful people to meet who don't fit that bill. Yeah. But um, yeah, Switzerland. It, it was an interesting place. It is a beautiful country. Mm. There are different parts that aren't so great, um, but it is Central Europe, and so they get they get long winters there. Yeah, you know the uh, snow might not melt in in the mountains in the Alps parts of for hiking until July. So it's it's uh, it's not an easy place. And did you meet as many people there? Would you say? I would. I would say no. But I, I would say part of that was my fault because oh. I was kind of constantly looking over my shoulder back at the U.S. I had a sister who was having uh, a lot of marital problems and personal mm. problems. I was very close to her, so I really felt pulled to I, – I think one year I flew back four times to help either her or my daughter. She was also going through various things. Mm -hmm in her attempt to make a go of it in Hollywood. Um, my father uh, had just passed away before we left. And so I was worried about my mother. And so, you know, it, it was kind of, I was tugged back to the U.S. more than I would have liked. And um, so I think, yeah, it was partly me. It's, it wasn't just switzerland's fault that <laughs> no. i didn't meet more people <laughs> on the other hand um we did meet a lot of people through my husband worked for the world health organization and there were so many trips for conferences I mean, we went 
to Vienna, in Istanbul, Barcelona, um, Sicily. We were just all over the place. And that was fun. It was great to have an excuse to just go to Corsica, go to <laughs> Crete, go anywhere. We did. We went everywhere. Yeah, you mentioned in your notes here that you actually traveled to every country pretty much. Pretty much, yeah. That's insane. I went, yeah, yeah, I went several times to uh, Norway because my close friend from Tanzania lived there. So mm -hmm. I would go up there and stay with her. I was in the UK a number of times, even before my daughter moved there. Mm -hmm. It's just so easy to get around. You know, you have easy jet, you have trains. Yeah. It's so easy and, and really cheap now. EasyJet puts everything within reach, doesn't it? I, I just try not to think about it because it depresses me a little bit because flying internal on Canada is so expensive. And I, and I, I get know. it. I, I get it. It's huge. But that's no excuse because you can fly London to Istanbul, four hour flight for like $50. It's crazy. Like, it, it's, it's just annoying because I, yeah. I, I just didn't, I, I didn't take advantage when I was living in UK enough of the EasyJet and Ryanair flights unfortunately yeah yeah well you're young you can still <laughs> yeah, you can still true. spend time there can always go back and do it yeah but being being in switzerland or austria in that central europe bit there's so much on your doorstep and the trains yeah. are all on time reasonably priced and you can get out anywhere and everybody speaks english so we have it easy you know you can get around we do that's a one advantage and a privilege that we have it is a privilege yeah it can't be understated i don't think um, no no even in Paris, where they don't like to speak English, they do speak a little bit to you. So it's yeah. a privilege. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this, this chapter was interesting. There's a different vibe to the other chapters. And I implore people to really get stuck into this one because I think, you know, we learned some lessons there, I think, from your, your time in Switzerland. And there's so much in the book that we haven't talked about, but that's good because people got to read it, right? So right. Gonna, there's loads of characters, loads of stories, and just so much to learn from it. And I was just, into it all the way and right. there's a quote in the book some somewhere in the switching chapter i think or maybe seattle chapter i think pico ia says after traveling the beauty of sitting still is to turn the sights i saw into insights yeah and i yeah. think you got that maybe when you settled into seattle after switzerland it's exactly right it was almost as if when uh, we settled into our house. We we finally found a house we liked with a, a little garden I could tend. Um, I I was looking out the window at the garden one day and I said, hmm, what do I want to write now? And I said, how about what I learned while living elsewhere? Mm -hmm. And so that became, that kind of grew. And I was happy to sit still for a while and and just distill lessons from all the different adventures we had and the different places we lived in and the different people we knew because everybody brought something into our lives and hopefully that was vice versa too yeah i think you need to take stock right just uh i feel like that's what we're doing now i was talking to you on an email about we just done four months in a camper van which we bought and it's quite small it's intimate but we drive across canada then back through the states but we actually left in January. So we've done this like year trip. And I wow. think we just, need, we just need to stop now and just like reflect. Yeah. Just where have we been and all the people we've met and all the places we've seen, all the activities, um, all the miles we drove in the US. Like it's just time to just reflect. And it's a, I love that quote. I've never heard it before, but I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. There, it, it does come a time, even when you're young and you could still keep yeah. going. If you felt like <laughs> it, when you need to sit still and just distill some insights and lessons mm. and figure yeah. out, well, what do I want to keep doing? What do I not want to do anymore? <laughs> yeah, know? that's a good lesson, actually. Right. Like, what don't I want to do anymore? <laughs> right. Because there's um, a lot of that. You know, you go through a lot of crap, really, when you're mm. on, on the road for four or five months. There are a lot of great things. It's a wonderful way. There's nothing like learning the contours of a country than driving it or walking it rather than flying over it. Indeed. And you mentioned on the email that you are thinking about doing that as well, maybe going across Canada. We are, yeah. I think that's our next adventure. Rather than wanting to live anywhere else, we would like to get a van like you had Ah. and just drive around the US, Canada. Just wherever wheels could take us without having to fly. I think we'd like to try that too. But in the US, the options are endless. You can go anywhere. And you mentioned national parks earlier. The US, I, I said to Emma, my partner, they I think they have the best because you can get the parks pass, which is $80 US dollars. And you know what? You I got it for I got it for 10. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it gives you access to everything for a year. Everything. Yeah. It's a um, lifelong golden eagle pass. Yeah. Oh, like even $80 is nothing for the two of us in the van. It's nothing, right, right. And you have access to like, I don't know how many parks there are, it's like 60 or 80, I can't remember now, but. Um. Yeah, everything from, you know, small ones like Bryce and Zion mm. to the big ones. In fact, yeah, yeah in a, next month we're going to Arizona. So we'll be in Grand Canyon and mm. uh, my husband's brother lives in Phoenix. So that's where we usually go oh, yeah. for to get away from the Seattle rains in November. As we speak right now, yeah. You, you have them too, I think. Yeah, we've uh, experienced that a lot. Yeah. Uh, but Canada has the same thing, same price pretty much, the Parks Pass, National Parks Pass. So, Oh, that's uh, great. Yeah, if you go there, you should get that too. That gets you access to all the parks. We actually made a rule in Canada. Every province, we're going to National Park and we're staying there. And we went oh. to nine or ten provinces and went to nine, ten National Parks. So Fantastic. Yeah. They're, oh, they're amazing as well. Yeah. Well, you probably have something to write about it. Oh, I can write about a lot. Yeah, it's just that I have a bit of an anxiety with writing because I don't think I'm very good. So I don't yeah. um, put much pen to paper, but I am going to do it. It's going to be one of my goals next year is to get something down. Um, I've got two. I've got like the the trip, but also the podcast. There's lessons in both that I've learned. Yeah, well, I'm sure if you sat still and, and uh, turned your sights into insights yes, uh, yes just just in your own you know just making a few little notes you could do a podcast uh session on it maybe with anna and just talk yeah. about what did we learn what did we love what did we hate <laughs> that might be yeah. interesting that'd be interesting yeah i've actually yeah. written a book in draft i've got one on my drive somewhere i've done it about four years ago about my two-year trip when i was much younger a bit more hedonistic, lots of stories, probably some cringe in there. But sitting there, I'm like, oh, I need to do something with that. But I've written it. It's like 300 pages or something. It's ridiculous. Fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you're ready, you kind of go and look at it and say, is this worth rewriting? Or mm. do I use it as a springboard and do something new? Yeah. So that's where I'm at with the book ideas. Uh, but please tell people, where can we find your book and where can we buy it? So my book is available on Amazon um, at bookshop.org. 
bookshop.org does um, buy books from independent bookstores, so they're a good venue. Um, I have not sold the foreign rights to my book, so it's not available like in uh, the UK and in Europe. So oh. if, if any enterprising uh, agent out there wants the foreign rights, they should snap them up. But, Interesting. Uh, I'll clip that. Yeah. Yeah. In the meantime, um, I I recorded the book myself on Audible. Nice. Okay. And so it's available uh, um, on Find a Way. Find a Way Voices is the venue I used, and they distribute to Spotify, Audible, all different um, platforms. So the my audio book should be available worldwide. Got it. But print is just USA. Is it in Canada as well or just USA? I'm a f I think if you order, if you have an account with uh, Amazon, that you could get a delivery there. Yeah. Um, but again, gosh, you got to work on getting uh, getting a Canadian publisher to pick it up. <laughs> okay. So the top five people who listen in countries, they are obviously English-speaking countries. So USA is a big one, so that's fine. They can, I'll put a link in the show notes and they can click and buy it. No right. problem. But I do have Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and UK. They're the right. other top ones. So yeah, let me see what I can find and put some links Wonderful. in the show notes. Wonderful. That'd be great. And I just want to say I loved it. Great book. Uh, oh, thank put, you so much. Yeah. Just uh I think I'm interested by home. I think anything that says home in it, I'm like, ah, oh, what is that? Because I haven't really lived in UK for a while. I'm like, ah, oh, do I still see that as home? Or was Vancouver home? Oh, I don't know. I'm still working it out. Yeah, no, home is uh, probably not the UK anymore. I imagine you've grown enough, and as an adult, you've got you've got uh, a sense of home inside you. That's kind of what I came to in in my book, is that you need to find it inside and with your partner. I mean, y your home is where your partner is, really. For the longest times, home was where, for the kids, it was always home was where, wherever the parents were. Yeah. And um, because my daughter now has her own partner and kids, she's got a different sense of home. My son, he's still not uh, uh, tied down yet. So I think for him, you know, yeah, I'm going to go home this weekend. That would be coming to us. Oh, so, uh, okay. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think a, a journalist who I interviewed called Paige McCannahan, she's American, lived in France, actually. She lives in France. She um said that, and it resonated with me, she said that home is not a physical place, it's where the family is. So she moves yeah. about quite a bit, and so as long as the four of them are together, that can be, in theory, anywhere in the world, because it's, that's the home, as opposed to, like, a physical building. So that's quite yeah. an, an interesting insight. I agree. It's less a, a physical place like a yard, a house, a, you know, a place you can point to on the map and more of where you feel like you're, you belong, mm. where you are at home in your skin, like, and having lived in Africa and in Europe, um, I can feel at home a lot of places in the U.S. now because, you know, body language um mother tongue all of that comes into play and i feel like i belong partly because you know my sister lives in idaho or my brother lives in dallas i can go there and feel at home 
I mean, not that I want to live there forever. I don't want to, <laughs> but, but, you know, there's degrees, I think, of um, feeling comfort and belonging. And so you settle where you feel the greatest degree of that and where your partner is. That's a big part of it. Absolutely. Um, that's a great way to finish on home. I just want to ask, where can people maybe visit a website that you have and get in contact with you if they want to ask any questions or reach out via a social media? Where can people sure. find you? So um, I have an author website. It's terryrepack.com, T-E-R-R-Y-R-E-P-A-K.com. And there's lots of articles on there, travel articles, some of them from Tanzania, from uh, when I was writing for the Dar Guide magazine. And my author website is PNW, Pacific Northwest Author. So PNW Author at gmail.com. Okay, cool. I'll put links in the show notes for them so people can access. Perfect. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, James. This was one really bonus, fun. One bonus oh, yeah. question, actually. Oh, you can have uh, two. Okay. I've got some quick yeah. fire travel questions coming. So oh, be, yeah, yeah, yeah. prepare for them. They're a little feature at the end. The yeah. bonus question is for Stefan. He's uh ethnicity is polish right yes that's so exactly does, so does he feel poland is home or is he oh no US? he never lived there okay even though yeah. he has ties there he doesn't feel like no no he never he never lived no. there his mother tongue actually is polish because his mother and yeah. father spoke polish to him yeah but um no he's got a he lived all over it's like a military family almost but they were research vets he was a research vet so he grew up in uh africa a little bit he mm. was was actually born in Congo, yeah, because uh, his parents were out there, and he grew up in Philadelphia. But he's been with me in Atlanta, Maryland, Santa Fe, New Mexico. So, I think for him, he it would say home is wherever I am. Mm. But he also has feels more at home in Europe than I do. So he. Since he grew up in Congo, where it was French speaking, yeah, he's very fluent in French and he loves France. And so okay. he spent a lot of time there. And he's fluent in Polish as well, right? Oh, yeah. He's fluent in Polish, too. Can, can your kids speak Polish? No, um, they 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 heard him sing Polish songs when they would go to sleep at night. He yeah. would sing to them in Polish, but they don't really have it. Uh, yeah. it's hard language. Hard, it's a hard language. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the hardest ones in the world, I think, to so. say. yeah very interesting okay we're going to finish the episode some quick fire travel questions these are just like your favorite things you you traveled around the world i've got some interesting questions for you i'd love to hear what you're going to say i prepped Uh, okay (laughs) it's travel question time my first question is to name three countries that you travel to that you would have to say are your favorites uh tanzania uh switzerland or austria i would put them next to each other they're kind of kind of uh i don't want to say interchangeable but they're they're similar similar um and i you know i have to say canada i love canada oh do you oh yeah i do amazing country yeah 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 Yeah, i spent some time in manning park and uh cathedral lakes up there and okanagan it's gorgeous it's all beautiful up there yeah it's always rated in the top five or ten countries in the world so there's yeah. a reason for that yeah okay what about three countries you've not traveled to that are next on your hit list um 
I would say I'd like to go to Machu Picchu in Peru. Yeah. Um, Colombia. This is kind of more South America focused because I don't know South America very well. Mm-hmm. So I'd say Colombia. Um, I have a niece who leads yoga retreats. So I'm going to go on a yoga retreat with her there. Dream. And um, probably I, w- I would like to go to Vietnam. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And do you know the total number of countries you travel to? I I would say um, 50 to 60. Okay. And what has been a favorite beach? In Zanzibar. No, hands down. <laughs> it does yeah, look idyllic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. What about a favorite walk or hike that you've done? Um, well, I, I mean, I would say Kilimanjaro. There's just nothing like it. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the contrast from like the landscape at the base to the top. It's just beautiful. Okay. It looks pretty cool. Um, I think that's on most people's lists. I don't believe them if they don't say that. Yeah. Uh, okay. If you could sit in one city in the world, drink a coffee, and just watch people and watch the world go by, where are you going to sit? Salzburg. Okay. Great. And do you have a favorite country's coffee? A bit of a geeky coffee question. Is there a particular coffee that you like from any country? I don't drink coffee, so <laughs> okay. I'll tell you my favorite tea. Yeah, tea's good. Yeah, yeah. It's Murchies in Victoria. Ah, okay. Do you know Murchies? I think I've heard of that, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, the great tea shop. I order my tea here in Seattle from them. Victoria's like going home a little bit. Is so that right? Very, very yeah, British, yeah. A, it, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like, oh, Great city. Yeah, I like it, yeah. And very accessible to you now. You can get a ferry across, right? Yes. Okay, what about a favourite sunset? Um... You know, we had beautiful sunsets from our beach in Dar es Salaam. So I would say we almost never missed it. We'd walk around it at evening time and and, uh, it's called uh, the M. Sasani Peninsula, M. Sasani Peninsula, where we lived. And that that bay is just about a beautiful sunset. Awesome. Okay. Three countries that have your favorite foods internationally. Ethiopia, because I love Ethiopian food. Thailand. Of course, yeah. Love Thai. And Turkey. I love Turkish food. Okay. And which country do you think has the kindest people on your travels? Um, gosh. I'd say every place I ever traveled, I always found kind people. So I couldn't pinpoint it. I mean, Tanzania was amazing. Um, but I, I always found nice people anywhere I went. Okay. Very kind. That's a good question. It's a nice one. <laughs> what about a favorite, like traveling activity? I know you mentioned the book, but doing safaris and stuff. Is there one that sticks out like that? That activity I, was walking. unbelievable. We always do walk. We walk everywhere. Um, I have a friend who wrote a book called to walk. It is to see it. Cause she did the gr5 which goes from netherlands down to marseille it's a 1400 miles and she named her book to walk it is to see it because there's nothing like getting to know a country by walking its contours just feeling every mound and (laughs) dip and everything else it's the most intimate isn't it i think alongside you know doing a campervan trip is cool but walking somewhere even more intimate right right yeah 
which country in your opinion on your travels was the best for budget so where would your dollar go the furthest you know that was that was thailand back in the 80s when i traveled there with my husband so that was that was a good deal i don't know what it's like now i haven't been back i'd love to see what you think of that because that changed have you been i've been twice yeah i went and is it expensive do you consider no 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 not expensive but it's got more expensive than the times i went but unfortunately for thailand you have to do a before and after and that is the beach to film remember the beach in the 90s yes i think when they filmed at their Maya Bay in Thailand, people start flocking there and that changed the, the landscape. But the time that you went, that would have been the best time to go. I think that yes. would have been more rustic and more authentic. Yes, yes. But I bet you um, when we finally get to Vietnam, that's probably a good budget place to travel to. Vietnam is a great country, yeah, and very budget-friendly. I've been there twice. That is, huh. for, for people, that's got to be up there, some of the nicest uh, people. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. And the last question would be, if someone's listening right now and they haven't traveled that much or they're a bit scared to maybe go international travel or a country they're not sure about, any words of wisdom as why they should go? Um, if they're a bit scared, I would say go to a country where you are likely to find people who would understand you language-wise. It does help. You don't feel as strange or foreign. But I would also say the best piece of advice is you don't have forever. You know, you don't know how long you have on this earth. So get out and see it and do it. And don't don't have regrets. Don't live a life of regret that you didn't do something. Chances awesome. are you're going to survive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like one part, just do it. And another part, you will survive. If you don't like it, just go home. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can. You can go home. Yeah. As the title of your book, Circling Home. So we'll finish on on that little quip there. So thanks, Terry, for coming on the podcast. It's been a great chat. I've learned a lot. and I loved your book. Thank you, James. Your, your enthusiasm is greatly appreciated. Awesome. Thanks for coming on. Take care. Thank you for listening to my Winging It Travel podcast episode today. You can find me on Instagram at James Hammond Travel or Winging It Travel podcast. You can search for both. I release weekly clips of this podcast episode as well as photos from the last eight to ten years of my travels. You can also follow me on TikTok, Facebook and Pinterest by searching Winging It Travel Podcast. I do release daily content to do with travel and the podcast throughout the week. Also check out my website, jameshammond.org. There's content about myself, my travels, and there's also a newsletter sign up as well as a contact form. Finally, please rate and review the podcast on Podchaser. This is my platform of choice. Alternatively, you can rate this on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. This really helps the podcast gain a bit of traction for the future in terms of guests and content. And I'm glad to see that you guys are listening out there, reviewing it and enjoying the content so far. Stay safe, stay humble, keep listening, keep traveling, and I'll catch you soon. Cheers, James.